This episode of The Jewish Views contains discussions that some listeners may find distressing. The Jewish Views on the latest terror attack on Israel that's left four dead and 15 wounded. The London-based artist whose fine bone China has got a starring role in BBC's Sherlock. And Max's foundation, we speak to the mother who's turned a family tragedy into hope for others. But first, with a roundup of the Jewish news this week, I'm Vivian Krieger. Jewish community leaders have expressed their outrage at the Jerusalem terrorist attack, which killed four Israeli soldiers and wounded 15 others. The Palestinian who drove a truck into the group was a supporter of Islamic State and had probably copied similar atrocities in France and Germany. Sir Mick Davis, chairman of the Jewish Leadership Council, offered his condolences to the families and said none of us should have to face the constant threat of terrorism. The tour guide, who was knocked over by the truck but who prevented further tragedy by shooting dead the attacker, spoke for the first time after his heroic act. Etan Rundt said he was just grateful to be alive. Meanwhile, in Germany, Berlin's Brandenburg Gate was lit up in the colours of the Israeli flag. The Israeli embassy there said it was moved by the gesture of support from both the government and the people of Berlin. At Newcastle Crown Court, an internet troll has admitted making anti-Semitic death threats to the Labour MP Luciana Berger. John Nimmo, who's 28, also admitted sending offensive emails to an anti-hate crime organisation. Nimmo had told Miss Berger she would get it like Joe Cox shortly after the MP was murdered. He was remanded in custody and told he'd be sentenced in February. The Students' Union at Oxford University has told the NUS leader Malia Boatia to resign if she won't issue a full and formal apology to Jewish students offended by some of her past statements, including saying Birmingham University was something of a Zionist outpost. In the rebuke, the union also criticised Oxford Dons for a lack of action in response to allegations of anti-Semitism from within the university's own Labour club. President-elect Donald Trump has encouraged many more accusations of nepotism after appointing his son-in-law as one of his senior advisers. Yared Kushner, who's an Orthodox Jew, is married to Trump's daughter Ivanka. Mr Kushner is known to have exerted considerable influence over his father-in-law and this month met the British Foreign Secretary Boris Johnson. Critics say the President-elect and Kushner have conflicts of interest owing to their stakes in businesses whose fortunes follow Republican policy decisions. And finally, the veteran British war correspondent Claire Hollingworth, who broke the news of the Nazi invasion of Poland to the world, has died at the age of 105. Miss Hollingworth was a trainee reporter for the Daily Telegraph when she spotted German forces massed on the Polish border and so got the scoop of the century. That's the news. Now the sport from Andrew. Thank you, Viv. Jewish football's longest-running club have become the latest to withdraw from the Maccabi League. Brixton Old Boys were formed in 1955, but their 62-year existence came to an end when chairman Robert Silverman confirmed the side could no longer continue due to a lack of interest from players. Elsewhere, Wickham Wanderers duo Scott Cashkett and Joe Jacobson have told the Jewish News how they can't wait to take on Tottenham Hotspur in the fourth round of the FA Cup. 
the League Two side will travel to White Hart Lane with a tie holding extra significance for Kashkut, who is a Spurs supporter. The 20-year-old said, As a Spurs fan, it's a game I always wanted to play in, in a stadium I always wanted to play in. And finally, the first Grand Slam event of the year gets underway on Monday with the start of the Australian Open. Dudi Seller and Jonathan Ehrlich are the only Israelis guaranteed a place in the main draw of the competition, with Julia Glushko looking to get through three rounds of qualifiers. You can catch up on all the latest from the world of Jewish sport at jewishnews.co.uk. Andrew, thank you very much indeed. Welcome along to this edition of The Jewish Views. I'm Phil Dave. Let's start off, as we always do, with a look through your copy of The Jewish News for this week. Joining me to go through it is Andrew Sherwood, who doesn't go anywhere, community and sports editor, and news editor Justin Cohen, the first one of 2017 for you. Welcome, sir. Welcome to you both, in fact. And let's start off, as we always do, with the front page, shall we, with a headline that reads, quite literally, no dollar sign hashtag exclamation mark pound sign Sherlock. Care to elaborate? Yeah, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't want to get you into trouble with any authorities by actually telling everyone what that word uh, represents. I'm sure you, people can, can use guess. their imaginations. Yeah. <laughs> well, th- this, of course, is about the Al Jazeera broadcast a series of programmes called The Lobby, which it start, started broadcasting this week and is designed to be an undercover expose of what it th- sees as the clandestine influence of Israel and the Israeli embassy on British politics and on British uh, public life. The first of those programmes focused on student life and the apparent influence there. And the second one was really focused around the Labour Party conference, Jewish labour movement and organisations there. I think the reason for this headline is really it was six months of filming by Al Jazeera, undercover, all sorts of meetings, incredible access. But what have they come up with? Well, we know now that Israel likes to represent its country in this country. We know that they are Zionists. We know that Israeli officials have contact with uh, Jewish community officials. And even sometimes people who work for the embassy even go on to work for Jewish community organizations. Do they? Not, uh, believe it or not, yes. Good gracious. I'm not, I'm not entirely sure <laughs> what, what new revelations there are here. Of course, there were the, the very grabbing headlines on the surface uh, the weekend about how a, apparently this Israeli embassy official plotted as they put it, to take down a foreign office official. But in fact, what that amounted to was a conversation between two friends over dinner, neither of whom had very much power to bring down anyone. It was hardly a plot. It it was clearly done in in, in a joking fashion, and yet it, it became this huge, huge headline. Well, hang on a second, though, because even if one does, quote, joke about something like that, I think that one does have to be careful because obviously even if it is said in jest amongst friends, there's always an age old expression that Big Brother is watching you and that the walls are bugged and all of that and you never know really what could be heard and by who. So I do think that we do live in an age where we are more aware that we shouldn't say certain things. So even if it was in jest, maybe in bad taste? Look, you're, you're absolutely right. There's, there's no doubt that there are two elements here. First of all, this Israeli embassy official who was the political officer, Shai Massot, who has now been, his employment with the embassy unsurprisingly has been terminated. Clearly, he shouldn't be using language like that. No embassy official or, 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 or foreign embassy official should be using that language. But it was very clear that he, he didn't mean it. It's true, I would say, that Shai Massot trusted 
this guy who he'd only met a few months earlier far too much, gave him far too much access. And you can also potentially look at the embassy about why they gave this official who wasn't even a diplomat so much rope with which unfortunately he's hung himself and affected a lot of members of the of the community as well who are featured in this documentary. Well, there has been a bit of a backlash in light of this, hasn't there? Unfortunately, there's been a bit of a spike in anti-Semitism off the back of. Yeah, well, when a programme like this appears, you have to wonder why Israel is picked out as some kind of exception. Any foreign embassy in London will be looking to to speak up for its country and to and to serve its interests. Uh, and yet Israel is seen as somehow, uh, you know, more suspicion surrounding it. And unfortunately, when it comes to Israel, you have all those people who like to believe in tropes about influence, about money and so on. And this programme, unfortunately, will feed into and speak to those people. And you didn't need to look any further, unfortunately, than the than the comments feed of the Al Jazeera website underneath their original news story, which this week has included some horrific stuff. I mean, this is not subtle anti-Semitism all, all about Israel. This is about ovens, about the Holocaust, even incitement to violence in one case. And yet Al Jazeera hasn't seen fit to remove any of this stuff, despite the fact that it clearly contravenes its own community rules. We contacted Al Jazeera at the Jewish News on Tuesday and by Thursday this stuff still remained on the site. It's just bizarre. It is. And also, Andrew, doesn't it go to show that it almost doesn't take a lot to encourage people to say what they think they can say about Jews and get away with it? This isn't the first time we've discussed this kind of topic on the views on the show as well. Obviously, you've heard from Justin, who spoke about what happened, the sting, Al Jazeera. The, as you said, the messages that have appeared on Al Jazeera's on the website are quite shocking to read them out. Well, you wouldn't want to read them out loud in the paper. But when you look in the paper and see some of the comments, they are truly disgusting and horrific. And as, as you said, any incident like this, it just brings them all the it brings the internet trolls out again. They, they need the smallest of excuses to do that. And once it happens, you see them all come out. Indeed. Well, hopefully with any luck, any comments that are out there from any organisation, as soon as they are spotted, will be removed in a bit to try and combat such foul language. Now, speaking of foul, of course, we are all aware by now of the horrific terror attack that took place in Jerusalem last Sunday. And I believe that we've got that in the paper as well from the point of view of the hero of the hour. Yes, indeed, Phil. It was a terribly horrific attack that took place last Sunday evening when a Palestinian drove his truck into a group of Israeli soldiers, killing four, wounding another 15. But as you say, the hero of that truly horrific incident was a man called Eton Rond, who is or he used to guide British students on their gap year programmes. He was actually injured during the attack, but then he approached the cabin and he shot the driver as he sought to reverse his truck back into more Israelis. It's just absolutely unbelievable, isn't it? And when you just listen to something like that, you just think it sounds like something out of a film. And regrettably, it's real life. And it is unbelievable to think that anyone has got the capability to think like that. And of course, what's even more unbelievable, Justin, is that there are some people who are calling the driver the hero of the hour rather than the one who actually shot him. Yeah, well, sadly, and and, and sadly, all too predictably as well, we've seen celebrations in parts of the territories by some members of the Palestinian community following these attacks. And it's not unusual, unfortunately, to see this such kind of thing. And it's also not a surprise given the level of incitement that does come out of parts of the territories. 
What is interesting, though, is that everyone is very quick to lambast the British media for the coverage that Israel gets. But I genuinely believe that the coverage that I saw really did demonstrate that Israel was the victim. And of course, Israel was the victim of this. We know that. The Jewish community of the wider world knows that. But not necessarily everyone in the global community knows that. And the fact that the British media, pretty much without exception, covered this story as... Israel being the victim of a terror attack was very reassuring. And what was even more reassuring, I think, was that some of the countries that came out in solidarity with them as well. Yeah, absolutely. The Brandenburg Gate, I think, was the first major symbol to be emblazoned with the Israeli flag, of course, in Berlin. Um, Paris and Amsterdam, I believe, also followed suit incredible symbolism and poignancy in seeing the Israeli flag on a major building that once carried and was emblazoned with swastikas, you know, 75 years on to see this uh, incredible sight. And, and that image, uh, you know, was everywhere on social media on Tuesday night. Uh, you know, it really was spreading like wildfire. Uh, and quite right, too. Uh, we didn't see anything in London. That would have been also a, a welcome gesture. But you know, I, th- I have to say this is quite unusual for for those three cities to do it as well. I think it's uh, a first for an attack of this sort in Israel, and, and as it should be, they do this. But maybe London will will be will be following next if if, and sadly, it's probably inevitable we see another attack in the future. Well, let us hope that it doesn't happen any time soon. But of course, what's even more extraordinary about this particular case with the flags being lit up is that Paris and France in general unfortunately has in recent years got a very bad press from people saying that they don't feel safe as Jews living there so that's even more amazing to see that and I don't think we do too badly here in London anyway unfortunately that is where we're going to have to leave it for a look at the paper for this week but thank you both very much indeed don't forget that you can pick up your copy of the Jewish News every Thursday across London or you can read the e-version online at jewishnews.co.uk As you've already heard, Jewish community leaders have expressed their outrage at the Jerusalem terrorist attack, which killed four Israeli soldiers and wounded 15 others. The Palestinian who drove a truck into the group was a supporter of Islamic State and had probably copied similar atrocities in France and Germany. To gauge reaction from not just Israel, but the wider world, Clive Roslin has been speaking to journalist Raphael Aron from The Times of Israel. Raphael, could I begin by asking you exactly, remind us what happened to those who might not be aware of it. Okay, so on Sunday in the early afternoon, you had a group of soldiers from a cadet school, an officer's school, coming down the bus at the Armon Hanitziv promenade. It's a beautiful spot in Jerusalem where you have this fantastic view over the old city. And the group of cadets was there for an educational day to learn more about Jerusalem and the meaning of the city and its connection to the Jewish people and so on and so forth. And then you have a terrorist, if you want to call him that, or a Palestinian assailant who is just ramming his truck into the group of soldiers, killing four of them. And as it were, once he ran over that group of soldiers, he manages actually to go into reverse and he actually goes back once again, rolling over the soldiers until a group of soldiers and some of the local people who are just happened to be there actually managed to shoot the assailant. However, too late, 
for three women and one young man who were all killed by the attack. It's really a horrifying story. Is there anything that you know about him, about the attacker? Uh, yes. He uh, is from the neighborhood of Jabal Mukabel, uh, which is in East Jerusalem and has been uh, the home of many of the terrorists and assailants uh, over the last 12 months or so. According to uh, the Israeli Prime Minister Netanyahu, he has been sympathizing with uh, the Islamic State group. Uh, he has not belonged to any uh, terror organization. He's not part of Hamas or even uh, of uh, Fatah or the Islamic Jihad or any other group. He has become uh, religiously, uh, he's strengthened religiously, as we say uh, um, in Hebrew. He has become more devout in his observation of, of Islam, and therefore people say that uh, the attack was inspired by ISIS. They, he, he didn't write a letter or anything like this, so there's no clear indication that that was a premeditated attack on the orders of ISIS or anybody else, but he was clearly uh, inspired by some kind of Muslim fundamentalist idea. It's, uh, well, that's about him. Can you tell us something about some of the poor victims? Well, you have 20-year-old Yael Yekutiel. She's from Givatayim, which is uh, near Tel Aviv. You have 22-year-old uh, Shia Khajash from Maleodumim, which is beyond the Green Line. Some people call it a settlement a Jerusalem suburb uh, to the east of the capital. You have Shira Tzur from Haifa. She was 20 years old. And then you have one uh, male soldier, Second Lieutenant Erez Orbach, who lived in Alon Shvut, also beyond uh, the Green Line. He actually happened to be also an American citizen. Uh, what's interesting about uh, Erez Orbach is that he did not have to serve because he has uh, some kind of uh, medical condition that um, got him the clearance, but he fought actually to be recruited. He wanted to serve, and he actually made it uh, to, to officer school and became an officer. So um, his death was particularly poignant for Israelis. Yes, that makes that makes the story. I mean, it's, it's a terrible story anyway, and a disastrous story and a tragic story, but that makes it even worse somehow, hearing that bit of it. Tell me, how have other countries reacted to the attack? Uh, have there been displays of solidarity before? Yes. The truth is that actually the condemnations poured in mere hours after the attack was publicized. Ambassadors stationed here in Israel were the first to issue clear condemnations. And then a few hours later, you had literally the entire Western world um, express sympathy and condemning terrorism very briefly, let me say that somewhat remarkably, the condemnations this time were more heartfelt and less accusatory towards Israel. Very often in the past, when Israeli soldiers were attacked in disputed territory, the international community, even though it condemned the attack, said, well, but uh, both sides now need to make sure not to escalate violence and both sides should get back to the negotiating table. And it was sort of a very hesitant uh, condemnation, if you will. And this time you had none of this. Why do you think uh, that time, is? Why well, I, uh, possibly it has to do with the fact that Europe and the Western world has felt itself what it feels like to be under the threat of terrorism. I mean, this was um, a lorry that rolled into a bunch of people. Of course, that is reminiscent of attacks in Nice, France, and Berlin, Germany, not too long ago. In Berlin, it was just a few weeks ago, right, uh, on the Christmas market attack there. And, and so I think uh, that clearly might play a role. And also, 
maybe the international community is trying to pacify Israel, which was very angry over the United Nations Security Council resolution that passed on December 23rd. And maybe because of that, the, the condemnations are, you know, very unequivocal and clear and sympathetic to Israel. So do you think that in a, in a very strange, ironic way, this helps Israel? No, it doesn't. It's very nice to um, hear expressions of condolences and sympathy when a tragedy like this happens. But politically, this is not going to change anything regarding the international community's position on the Israeli-Palestinian conflict. The parameters enshrined in the Security Council resolution I just mentioned, they're still there. And nobody is going to change anything about this because of a tragedy uh, such as this attack. Journalist Raphael Aaron talking to Clive Roslin there about the latest terrorist attack in Jerusalem, which killed four Israeli soldiers and wounded 15 others. You're listening to The Jewish Views in association with The Jewish News. Still to come on this edition, Clive Roslin will be back for our Jewish schmooze. Today, Clive and Kate will be joined by founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch from the JLE. They'll be discussing the changing role of women in Judaism. Plus, I'll be speaking to Shira Schiller about Max's Foundation, the charity set up in memory of her late son. But first, you might not necessarily be familiar with artist Ali Miller, but you may well have seen some of her work. Ali's Fine Bone China has been featured in previous episodes of BBC's Sherlock, London Restaurant Sketch and Liberty of London, to name but a few. Entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton has been finding out more about her work by speaking to Ali. Kate started by asking her to tell us how she would describe the work she does. My artwork is mainly collages put onto home products, mainly the teacups and saucers um, and a tea service uh, so that people can eat and enjoy my work at the same time. You can actually eat from your work. How did you get into that? Are you, are you trained? Are you a trained artist? I did go to art college. I went to Brighton University and Camberwell College of Art. Um, I've always done art all my life. It's my only way of communicating, I think, very well with the world, being very dyslexic. So, yes, I would say I'm trained <laughs> and did your have you got a background artistic family artistic yes my father was in the israeli army as a photographer and he was a photographer in the six-day war and he got his work published in life magazine and yeah he was very much a creative has your had your you said his father's in the army and the israeli army has your jewish background or i suppose israeli antecedents that affected your work at all Yes, very, very much so. I use the, my family history in a lot of my work. Some of my work in the past, I worked with my father's photography. I've tried to always express myself and have conversations with uh, my artwork. So I very much reflect on my family and my family history and that also being my Jewish heritage in my work. So even... Um, using like the number seven in Judaism, I have often used. Yes. Right. And you said that uh, you you like to eat, almost eat from your art and you take every yes. day. Tell us a bit more about that. So to people that are listening, you, you take cups and saucers that are already designed or, or do you choose certain designs or do you help 
with that with the design of of those so conceptually with my work has always been about memory and like i said with judaism i do take it and with judaism there is quite a thing about eating that's about being kosher and sitting around as a family especially on friday night so the fact that my artwork is about memory and then i have created products where people can share memories perhaps with family and friends by having food or drinks together really adds to my work personally and I have used second-hand vintage people like to call it or upcycle people like to call it or retro plates Um, people have given me their old family plates and I have reworked them with my own artwork and then they go back to another family or and the same family. And you can actually eat off them then? I mean, when you say rework, talk us through how that, what sort of thing you mean by that. So somebody will give me or I will collect or I have used. Um, when I first very much started, I was working with second-hand or already used plates. Mm-hmm. And I would put my own artwork onto the plates um, is that more lettering or is it pictures? or Pictures, pictures, yeah. And you've drawn pictures. those pictures. So I've got my original collages that tell a story about my life and those images I then will digitally put onto ceramic material that then can be fired into a kiln and placed onto these old plates or cups. And do you have your own workshop? Um, It's in and out of use, I will say. Um, I have little children, so the studio got taken away when the first one was born. But I do have a kiln, and I hope to have that back up and running later this year. (laughs) And how do you decide what you want to create? You sort of wake up in the morning and feeling feeling a bit, you know, Pesach is coming up or or Purim's (laughs) coming up. I'm going to do something relevant. How do you you work? No, I work very much in a natural, organic way, and I will just sit down and play, I will call it. And I very much find that when I look back at my work, it tells a very obvious story about my life. So there are pieces that I have created at a time when people have passed away, and those pieces very much talk about that. Um, I've created pieces that have talked about love and loss and affairs and my work very much talks to me if you like um after i've created it i find right so you so actually the themes are sort of serious they're not frivolous in that way yes absolutely yeah they mean they mean a lot to me and i think a lot of people can also reflect or um relate to the work that i create because it it's so universal obviously the the subjects that i talk about on a, on a fun side of it, um, I understand you've done something with uh, with the Sherlock, recent Sherlock. What's that all yes. about? Yes. So I was very lucky in the second series to first have my teacup and saucer on the series. They brought it off my website and and then it was just on TV. It was part of my core collection from the beginning. It was one of my original artworks that was put onto ceramics and they just brought it off the off my website and without even um, discussing it with you were you happy for it to be broadcast absolutely (laughs) it's somewhat changed my life that it's been on Sherlock because of all those wonderful Sherlock fans pretty much once it aired on Sherlock I was sold out the next night the next day extraordinary so that many people I was 
I was made to have a business that could actually survive. So I was absolutely thrilled and I owe and delighted to the guys that chose my teacup to go on Sherlock because it's so made me... So people actually would look at look, look at Sherlock and think, my goodness, I would like Sherlock's teacup. And then yes. go to... How do you even know where to get it? Well, there are a lot of websites out there that let you know every bit of information about Sherlock because there are some wonderful fans out there that like to know every bit of detail. And on these websites, it will tell you where you can buy certain pops. One Sherlockology. Sherlockology. Um, it's the ultimate to... secondary merchandising, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. <laughs> and so, you, so you've made your name. And how have things been different since then? Oh, absolutely turn around my whole entire life and it's been a, able to be a business that's ticking over while I do many other things Excellent. so yeah and for those listeners who'd like to see your work and um, maybe even buy some for themselves how do they how do they do that um, directly from my website which is alimiller.co.uk and you can buy directly from there. And also, if you're London-based, you're more than welcome to join me for a cup of tea and purchase from my home studio. And where's that? In At the moment, it's in West Hampstead, soon to be moving to Muswell Hill. Oh, well, I'm assuming for our listeners that it's not you blowing bubbles down the phone. That must be one of your, <laughs> one of your little ones. One of my little ones. Well, it's <laughs> lovely to speak to you and lovely to speak to the little one as well. Artist Ali Miller talking to entertainment and culture reporter Kate Fulton there about her fine bone china and where it's featured. In just a moment will be this week's Schmooze. A reminder, we live stream the Schmooze on our Facebook page every Thursday evening from 7pm Greenwich Mean Time. That all-important address is coming up, but it means that you can comment along as the discussion unfolds. And of course, we'll try and read out those comments as and when we get them. It's just another way that you can share your Jewish views with us. Speaking of which, if you would like to get involved, we would love to hear your Jewish views. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com forward slash Jewish Views or on Twitter. We are at Jewish Views UK. Now, if you're a parent, I'm sure that you couldn't even begin to imagine what our next guest has gone through. Shira Schiller's son, Max, was a very happy and seemingly healthy 10-year-old who tragically passed away suddenly in January of 2015. It's two years since his life was cut so horribly short, and during that time, Shira and her family have set up the organisation Max's Foundation designed to help fund research into the condition that he died from, known as hypotropic cardiomyopathy, or HCM. I've been speaking to Shira to find out more about her brave and incredible work, and I started by asking her to tell us a bit more about Max. Max was 10 years old when we lost him. Prior to that, he was a very happy very cheeky little boy. He loved his Xbox. He was a bit of a nerd. He loved Marvel. He was really, really kind-hearted, very sensitive and just very funny. And I'm guessing that seemingly healthy as well. He was. In the last couple of years before we lost him, we noticed that he was struggling with some sports. Um, he used to be very sporty. He used to play basketball a lot. He used to play football a lot. But over the period of two years, he started struggling. 
And it was hard because we didn't know whether it was just him being a normal boy and saying, oh, I can't, don't want to because didn't want to or, or if there was a problem. And then after some blood tests, it shows some elevated levels of a, of a particular, I can't remember the name of it, but I think it's PK levels in his blood, which got us referred to Great Ormond Street because they thought there may be a slight case for a muscular dystrophy or something that was affecting his muscles that would cause the extra, the tiredness and the lack of energy that he had. So we just started down the route of testing with Great Ormond Street in the November. So he'd had an ECG, he'd had an echo on his heart, he'd had some muscle testing as well, and he was due for some more testing in the new year. But unfortunately, we didn't make it to the new year. When the... When, when that horrible moment two years ago happened, what, I think this is just the most horrible question, but I have to ask it. Can you even begin to describe what that is like as a parent? Because I could imagine that anyone listening to this right now who is a parent can only think it's just beyond the worst nightmare. It was horrific. I actually don't think there's a word that's strong enough to describe what happened you know when we put him he went to bed we said good night sweet dreams i love you you know the normal night time and then a couple of hours later when we went upstairs to bed my husband went up first and he screamed my name i have never ever heard him scream my name like that flew up the stairs and max was lying there we got him out of bed I was ringing 999 actually my daughter was as well we were doing trying to resuscitate him the person on the phone the uh, 999 operator talking us through what to do and then the ambulance two ambulances turned up very very quickly and they were working on him and then we went to the hospital and they obviously tried uh, but I think we we kind of knew deep down that we'd lost him it was just I remember saying constantly bring please bring him back bring you know please bring him back but it was it it's just a horrific night. It was just, it is your worst nightmare. Um, <clears throat> goodness. Um, it, could you, can you tell us a bit about the condition that he had? Because you have, I assume, since discovered sort of what it was, because obviously Max's foundation, which we'll get onto in just a moment, is set up to try and do research. So tell us a bit about the condition. Okay, so we found out afterwards that he had a condition called hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, which is a thickening of the heart muscle wall, the heart wall, which obviously has an impact on blood flow and the function of the heart. And it causes sudden death, as we found out. It's very difficult to detect in, in younger children 
in over 14s and generally those who have gone through puberty, it's much easier to detect with an ECG or an echo. But in younger children like Max, the ECG and the echo wouldn't have picked it up because the heart wasn't developed enough to show any abnormalities. And hypertrophic cardiomyopathy is a genetic condition. But they wouldn't have thought to look for it because neither myself nor my husband have had it or we've never been diagnosed with it. We know now, having been tested, that we don't have it. So it's very, very, very difficult to diagnose. But if it is genetic, then where would it have come from if you and your husband don't have it? Well, there is a chance at a genetic level that Max made it up by himself. We don't know. There's... For genetic testing, it's very difficult to pinpoint exactly what they're looking for. It's been described to us as looking for a spelling mistake in one line, in one book, in a huge library. So while there are known genetic codes that show there is a problem, they don't know all of them yet. Well, incredibly enough, you are turning the most horrible situation into hopefully something very positive. And you have, in the last two years, started Max's Foundation. Can you tell us a bit about the foundation and what its purpose is? Okay, so we are surrounded by the most amazing people who have helped us get to where we are as a family and with the charity. We set the foundation up actually just under a year ago, with the help of friends who are now trustees of the charity. And our aim is to help fund research into hypertrophic cardiomyopathy, just to help stop this happening. If, if we can stop it happening to even one other family, that will make, it will make what we've, you know, even what we've been through is horrific. We wouldn't want it to happen to somebody else. And there is so much work that needs to be done and so much research that needs to be done. So we are, that's what we want to do. We want just want to help wherever we can. We're really fortunate to be working with Great Ormond Street with the Centre for, for Inherited Cardiac Diseases, which is run by Dr. Juan Kasky, who is our ambassador for the charity as well. So we're working very closely with him to raise funds for infrastructure funding that he needs for his research it's quite easy to get not easy but it's slightly easy for them to get funding for research but not so easy to get funding for infrastructure which is desperately needed so we've said to him tell us what you need and we will do what we can to raise the funds well I know there's going to be people listening now who want to know how they can help so what should they be doing Okay, so we have a website, which is www.maxisfoundation.org.uk. We're also on Facebook as well. If you look for Max's Foundation, you can donate via the website through Virgin Giving. There's a donate button. We've had people who've run events for us. You know, everything from putting on dinners for us to bad hair days. Our local hairdresser dressed up for Halloween and donated the money to us so there's there are so many ways people running marathons for us there's amazing people out there who have donated money and 
helped us. Well, I think it's fair to say that none so amazing as you are for talking to me. So thank you very much indeed. I would just say maybe just finally, what would you perhaps say to any parent who's listening out there who maybe has spotted something that they're not quite sure about? What advice would you give to them? I would say go just go with your instincts. If you think that something's wrong or if you're concerned, go and see your GP talk to them find out what you can and you know just you know be aware the truly remarkable and incredibly brave Shira Schiller talking to me there about her late son Max and the foundation that has been set up in his memory I would like to reassure anyone who found that particularly harrowing to listen to that I made sure that Shira was prepared to speak to us candidly before we recorded that interview, to which she very kindly agreed to do so. For more information, please do go to maxisfoundation.org.uk. You're listening to The Jewish Views, and this is The Jewish Schmooze, the part of the show where studio guests join me, Clive Roslin, to normally discuss matters that you've been hearing throughout the programme so far. Joining Kate Fulton and me today is founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch from the JLE. And the subject today is based on women in Judaism. The question is, how has the role of women changed in the religion over the years? And how do we think it will develop in years to come? Laura, let's start with you. Well, it's a very broad subject, Jewish women today. And let me take the aspect of empowerment of women. And let's be very positive about this and talk about all the driving change that women affect in our community and that women affect outside our community. And one of the projects that I've set up over the years is Women in Jewish Leadership to encourage more women to stand up to leadership roles in our community. And uh, it's had its successes and its failures, I would say, because we do have very dynamic, intelligent, educated Jewish women. We're very lucky. And yet most Jewish communal organizations continue to be largely dominated by men. So that's been a challenge, but it's been a great way to bring women together and to empower women and to get women to think about our role in the community. And the other project that I've been very instrumental in in recently is setting up a new project, which is Nisan Hashim, which is about bringing the two communities together, the Jewish and Muslim communities together through the women. And I think that the fact that it's women is very relevant because I believe and what my co-chair, who's a Muslim woman, Julie Siddiqui, believe is that as women, we tend to just roll our sleeves up and get on with it and really want our two communities to come together. And we really want to share our similarities and we really want to make Britain a more friendly, more welcoming, easier place to live for both of our communities. And we believe that doing it through the women is a very, very powerful way of doing it. Uh, What do you think about that? Rabbi Hirsch. So I um, pretty much in agreement with uh, oh, you are? that which Laura has uh, said. In other words, women in this day and age are better educated, are at a socioeconomic level which allows them to become more involved. And it would be difficult nowadays to 
put the blinders in place to the roles that men and women have had in the past. Perhaps the, the caveat I would add, it is obviously a very broad topic, but the caveat is that we need to make sure that the roles emerge from the fact that women are able and are in place to carry out a particular role rather than simply doing something because at this moment in time men are doing it. So, in other words, you would you would be happy to have a woman rabbi in the United Synagogue? Uh, well, uh, if we're talking from a halachic perspective, ah. then there would be certain roles which are assigned to men and assigned to women. We would say that men and women have both critical roles to play, but in certain areas, those roles are different to one another. But in the public domain, in the public sphere, there is much that can be done by both. It's just that we need to remove any sort of muddled thinking. I think for perhaps from a, a non-Jewish, a secular perspective, one of the ways we can trace this muddled thinking is to the conclusion that the UN came to, I think it was in October of 2016, to elect Wonder Woman as their role model, which they rapidly realised was a mistake about four weeks later, that it was totally sexist and totally non-feminist and they removed her as their ambassador within four to six weeks. And I think the reason, the underlying reason as to perhaps why they had elected her in the first place is because here is a woman who has made it in a man's world, but made it as a sort of quasi man. What we would like to see is women make it as women and promote that which women can do. And there's far more that they are able to do in today's now, world. Now, okay, whether she agrees with you. Yes, interesting, actually, both for myself and for my daughter, who is just about to start entering the workplace after university. It, it always seems to be that Jewishly, the issue is in the synagogue. And I often wonder, I'm very happy. I can't, can I be allowed to say it? I'm very happy with my place in the synagogue. I'm very happy doing what I do. I, I'm not looking to do more. If I wanted to do more, I would ask about it. If I was, to, Maybe I'm just very obedient. If I'm told no, that's I'm OK with certain things. Halakhically, that is, not obedient to everything. Just let that be said. I but want you see, certain interruption, <laughs> but women in the Sephardi synagogue are now allowed to be officers, wardens, whatever you call them, of the synagogue. And surely you would agree with that? Absolutely. I've been on the board of our synagogue many times. I mean, I've ah. only just recently recently stepped down. There are some people who feel genuine that they want to be able to do more, to be able to hold a safer Torah, to be able to do certain things. And there are women that I am going to say, I think they're saying things to be dafka rather than from a genuine sense of wanting to do it. And I think, again, those those desires those people need to be distinguished from one another and people have a genuine issue and something we can genuinely work with we should uh, be Laura are you one of those women? no I, I'm not with you on a lot of this I'm afraid so first of all let me just come back to your point about Wonder Woman I don't think Wonder Woman was rejected because she had uh, was a quasi-man. I think Wonder Woman was inappropriate because she was a woman who was showing all of her bits in public. She was not an appropriate role model. She was completely inappropriate, not because she was trying to be a man at all. She's absolutely anything but. So I would have to pick you up on that one. But let me come back to some of these other points. What we found when we did the study on women in Jewish leadership was that 
many women felt, and we, we tried very hard not to get into issues of denominational stuff, because obviously there are very different issues facing women in the orthodox part of our community to in the progressive part. And we tried really hard to avoid that. But what we did find was that a lot of women felt and feel that halakha is often used against them in a way that isn't appropriate, which keeps them back. We've also found that a lot of things have changed over the last few years because of pressure from women. So this idea that women can take on lay roles, well, it's only about three or four years since women have been allowed to be chairs of United Synagogues. So, you know, it's just a, a blink away that women couldn't have lay roles, never mind halachic roles. So this issue that we're talking about is not just about rabbis. It's not just about halakha. It's actually much broader in our community. And the other thing we found in our report is this is deeply embedded in our culture. We are a conservative culture. Let me give you another example. We have a very high expectations of women in our community regarding um, family, childbearing, looking after the children, producing a fantastic Friday night dinner. The whole thing, which is an enormous amount of work for women. And when you add to that the whole sort of requirements on women as part of the family, it inevitably makes it very difficult for them to be at board meetings of Jewish communal organisations at seven o'clock in the morning in the city or all sorts of other things we expect of our lay leadership. So the community needs to really think about this and think about do we genuinely want women to be uh, equal in terms of running our organisations, in terms of taking uh, responsibility of our organisations. And I say that putting the halachic issues to one side, because actually I don't really want to get involved in those because they're very denominationally specific. Rabbi De Hershon, do you want to answer that? Uh, I, I don't think, in other words, this is not something which is a challenge um, per se, because as Laura has said, we're, we're putting the halachic issues uh, to one side. Um, perhaps um, just... Uh, Excuse me, interrupt you, but maybe it's a shame that we've put the halachic issue to one side. Well, I, I just think that within a 15-minute casual radio programme, it's not something that we'll be able to cover at its correct depth. But perhaps just to pick up on two points and contextualise them. The first is historically. When Jews moved at the end of the 19th and beginning of 20th centuries from uh, mainly Eastern Europe to the United Kingdom, Palestine as it was then, South Africa and the United States especially, there was a move away from the shtetl existence where Judaism was quite focused on the home, both for the man and the woman, to an existence where you saw each other in the synagogue. And the synagogue took on an unnatural role, a role which inflated in its centrality in Judaism. If you think about it, for instance, from, uh, I don't know, an orthodox perspective in terms of perhaps definitions halachically of orthodoxy, whether it's Shabbat or whether it's kashrut or whether it's uh, family purity. These things are all actually overseen, run and decided in many ways by the woman rather than the man. But the moment Judaism is now only experienced or mainly experienced within the synagogue, you now need to achieve parity within the synagogue, which is perhaps one of the reasons why that lay role has been happening more and more in in recent years, in contrast to what would have been the case uh, a couple of hundred years ago, or even as recently as, as 70, 80 years, years ago. ago. Yeah. 
So right. you, you have two uh, women here, one who agrees with you totally, mm-hmm. and one who actually doesn't, who says she's quite happy with the way things are in the synagogue. Don't you, Kate? Well, completely happy, but as Rabbi Hirsch has said, which I, I completely agree with, the synagogue is not the be-all and end-all of Judaism. It is a place that people go to to pray. And those some women have very specific desires and requests and need for change. And I don't happen to be one of them, but that's only there. That does not mean that my need for equality, for empowerment, to... I mean, personally, I've been very lucky. I haven't had problems in my career and I've always managed to to attain senior positions. But I, I recognise that I need to help other people alongside that. But that's very separate from the synagogue. I'm not that interested in synagogues in this context, actually. I haven't focused on synagogues. I don't think synagogues are particularly the issue. Yes, a lot of Jewish life's moved into the synagogue, but there's a huge amount of Jewish life outside the synagogue. I mean, here we are sitting in Jewish care. Uh, It's hardly a synagogue. You know, we've got fantastic Jewish institutions. We've got Jewish schools. We've got Jewish youth movements. We've got a plethora of Jewish activity out there. So all those things you're talking about, Jewish schools, the Jewish charities and all the different organisations, you're really saying that there's still not enough women running them. Absolutely. When we last looked at the figures, about 30% of Jewish communal organisations had women CEOs, and far lower than that, far lower than that, have Jewish chairs. Now, when you compare that to secular society, which is who we have to compare ourselves to, we are way, way behind. And there's no good reason for that, given that our women are particularly, or our community, not only our women, but our, our community is well-educated, well-established. We've, most of us have been here for 100 years. It's not like we're new immigrants and haven't understood the ropes. So what is it? What is it that's holding our women back? What is it, Rabbi? Actually, I am able to feel the same level of question as you. Here we can even speak halachically. There are no impediments per se uh, to women uh, being involved in these roles and in these positions. And given that we are educating our women nowadays to a far greater degree than was ever the case, there is no reason they shouldn't be more involved in organisations such as you've mentioned, especially those outside of the synagogue. I think it would be a development which would help both the incumbents and those newly involved. You were vice chair of the Board of Deputies, weren't you, Laura? I was. But has there ever been a chair, woman leader? There's been one president, and that was Joe Wagerman. I was senior vice president, which is the highest, other than that, that a woman has got in the Board of Deputies. And that's over... 300 years. Now, we can probably exclude the first 250 250 years, years. but, you know, within recent modern history, it's almost unheard of. And the the Board of Deputies isn't the only institution. I mean, look more interestingly at the Union of Jewish Students. All right. So these are young people who don't have children, who don't have family responsibilities, who are young and fresh and well-educated. And We've actually just had two female presidents, but they were very, very unusual. In 40 years, I think there have been four. And 40 years is modern history. You know, there was Only a, a, four? Hmm? Only four? And I'm not sure that it's five, if you include the, the two recent ones, but it's very, very, very few. 
I mean, it's, it's about 10%. Um, and two of them have been very, very recent. So I think that we're kidding ourselves if we think that this is fluke. We're kidding ourselves if we think that there isn't an issue in the community. There is an issue in the community, and it's a Jewish issue. I compared it to the National Union of Students. So I went on their website and looked at their presidents, and they're about 50-50. How are we going to cope with all of this, Laura, do you think? I think ultimately it's going to boil down to the men. There's been an enormous amount of pressure by the women, from the women, over the last few years. But until our organisations and our male leadership really believe that our community would benefit from the talents of our women and will go to lengths to encourage them in and to nurture the women, until we reach that stage, it's very, very difficult to see how we really break through. Well, I'm afraid, unfortunately, that's where we're going to have to leave it. But my thanks to our guests, founder of Mitzvah Day, Laura Marks, and Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch from the JLE. Please do feel free to share your Jewish views with us. You can email studio at jewishviews.co.uk or you can contact us via social media. Find us on Facebook by going to facebook.com slash jewishviews or on Twitter, we are at jewishviewsuk. Time now for our rabbinic thought for the week. And this time it comes from Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi, UK. One of the most beautiful traditions in Judaism is blessing the children on Friday night. You bless your boys and you bless your girls because there's a different blessing for each in terms of who we want them to be like. We ask our girls to be like Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel and Leah and our boys to be like Ephraim and Asher. And there's an obvious question. And the question is this, surely we should ask the boys to be like Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. If the girls to be like the four mothers, we want our boys to be like the three fathers. And of course, the Ephraim and Asher link comes from this week's Sedra, Vayachi, where Jacob blesses his grandchildren. And we now use their names to bless our children. But the question is why? And the answer, I think, is incredibly powerful and resonates with the struggles we have today in 21st century Jewish life. You see, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob grew up in the secure life of the Jewish community. Their struggles were certain struggles, but not like Ephraim and Nasha had to deal with. Ephraim and Nasha grew up in an alien society, in a non-Jewish society, with values in some ways antithetical to theirs. And yet, throughout all that, they remained faithful to the faith of their father, Joseph, and the faith of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And in some ways, Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel, and Leah also came from outside the community. They understood what it was like to be somebody who has to struggle with your identity when not everyone around you is keeping theirs. And that is the challenge we give to our children. Can you be a Jew in a non-Jewish world? Can you remain faithful to the traditions of your parents when the world says something else? Because Sarah, Rebecca, Rachel and Leah did. And so did their father Manasseh. And we hope and pray that our children will as well.
Thank you to Rabbi Andrew Shaw from Mizrahi UK with our thoughts for the week. And that's all the Jewish views we have time for. Thanks to our guests, Raphael Aaron, Ali Miller, Shira Schiller. Thanks also to the Schmooze team. They were Laura Marks and Rabbi Aubrey Hirsch. And also, thank you to you at home for listening. And we mustn't forget the team, including our producers, Adam Bradley and Sue Greenberg. You can always listen to the most recent edition of The Jewish Views by visiting the Jewish News website, jewishnews.co.uk, and you can listen to all previous editions by searching for us in iTunes. The Jewish Views is brought to you in association with The Jewish News and is part recorded at the studios of Jewish Care in London. I'm Phil Dave. Do make sure you join us next time here on The Jewish Views. Goodbye.